You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Our first reading comes from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 4, and that begins on page 620 of your Pew Bible. And as always, please consider this a gift from us to you if you do not have a Bible of your own at home. Take one with you after the service. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. The word of the Lord. All rise, reading of the gospel. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, page 809 in your Bibles. The holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Be seated, please. Well, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. For those of you who are new and visiting for the first time, welcome to Redeemer. So glad you're here. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dan. I'm very grateful, very grateful to serve as a pastor here. Now, we are in the third week of a new sermon series on the Beatitudes of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, a series that we are calling Paradox Manifesto. And we're calling it this, uh, not because we're trying to be creative or edgy, uh, but because the Beatitudes of Jesus are, are in fact paradoxical in nature. They do not follow the logic of this world. And taken together as a whole, they do form something of a public declaration of the kingdom of Jesus. And each Beatitude follows the same kind of general format. Uh, it goes something along the lines of, Blessed are the blank, a certain kind of person, for they shall be blank, something good that happens to them. And as we said last week, that first word blessed is a bit of a tricky word for us, us uh, English speakers um, because the original Greek language 
has uh, it as this word makarios, which means something along the lines of happy or lucky or fortunate or congratulations. It's a declaration of goodness. And today we're going to explore this beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Or as an older translation puts it, how fortunate those who mourn, for they shall be consoled. As we begin, uh, let me say a prayer, uh, both for myself and for all of us. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Um, We're going to start on a little bit of a down note, but we're going to end on a high note, okay? So I'm just letting you know the the trajectory of the sermon for today, all right? Um, My childhood at least up until the age of of 13 or 14, was relatively grief-free. had a very happy childhood. But somewhere at the end of middle school, beginning of high school, everything started to fall apart. And for the ensuing years, it just kept falling apart. Uh, It started when my grandmother, who I love dearly and who my oldest daughter is named after and who lived in the same town as us, and we saw her regularly, uh, died of lung cancer. Uh, when I was just starting off high school, and we walked with her as her health declined. It continued uh, when my freshman uh, hallmate and close friend uh, in college died riding a bike to class uh, one um, fall morning. It continued when a soccer teammate of mine drowned when swimming in a lake. And then all of these are just a few months apart. And then a high school friend died in Fallujah in Iraq in a battle there. Uh, A high school friend um, later that same semester committed suicide. A college friend that same semester committed suicide. And at the end of that year, a college friend died after jumping off a bridge to celebrate graduation. As I entered my late teen years, this is right around 19 for me, the deaths were piling up and I went to so many funerals for people my age. And this brought down any sense of of youthful immortality that I had at that time. I, at that point, knew I was going to die. I just didn't know when. And as evidence of kind of the mental and emotional state I was in at that time, um, a close friend of mine and I at the time actually put together a video that was us like speaking to our family and friends that was to be shown at our funerals after we died. Like we were just so convinced that life was short and it's all going to end soon. It also showed me that people deal with grief and loss in a wide variety of ways. In all of those different tragedies, I watched the people around me respond to tragedy in so many ways, some healthy, some very unhealthy, but people respond to grief differently. It also made me realize that I did not know how to grieve. Now, grief is a universal human experience. Two things are true. None of us escape it and all are changed by it. Nobody gets out of grief unchanged. Nobody escapes it. Everyone is changed by it. And grief is not only about death. Like, let's be clear. We're not just talking about people dying. Any loss can bring grief. It could be something like retirement from a job, maybe a job that you loved, but now you're in a new season and you're feeling the loss. It could be something much sadder, like the end of a marriage, a divorce. It could be medical it could be biological, like the amputation of a limb. It, it, could be, it could be something that generally is a great thing, like the departure of a child to college. But now the family is different, and you feel the absence of that child in the house. It could be moving away from a neighborhood that you loved, or maybe watching a good neighbor leave and move away. It could be losing a home. It could be the death of a pet. It could be a serious medical diagnosis. 
It could even be something like a season of doubt that you're walking through and and you're mourning the loss of confidence, the loss of clarity that you used to have. Whenever part of life is lost or taken away, it triggers grief and grief is painful. To grieve is to suffer. C.S. Lewis put it this way after his wife died. He wrote, no one ever told me that grief felt like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the same yawning. I keep on swallowing. At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says, or perhaps hard to even want to take it in. It's so uninteresting, and yet I want others to be around me, and I dread the moments when the house is empty, if only they would talk to each other instead of trying to talk to me. And I, as I read this and as, as we're thinking together, I, I just want to ask a question. I wonder, do we all know how to grieve well? There is such a thing as grieving well, and there is such a thing as not grieving well. And I wonder if we know how to grieve well. You know, the story of the Bible is not shy or bashful at all about the pain of life or about the necessity of grief. I mean, if you want to trace a thread, a common thread through the entire story of Scripture, trace the thread of tears. Tears run through the story of the Bible. Think about Hagar weeping for Ishmael in the desert when she fears that her son is going to die of thirst. Think about Esau weeping after losing his father's blessing to his brother Jacob. You think about the Israelites crying out in collective grief when Pharaoh orders the execution of all Hebrew baby boys. Think about Naomi and Ruth grieving, grieving for their dead husbands. You think about David, King David, who writes uh, in the Psalms, some of the Psalms that you read this summer as a church, where he writes things like, I flood my bed with tears, or tears are the only food I have. You think about Jeremiah lamenting over Jerusalem after it's sacked by the Babylonian army. It's national grief, not just personal. And, he, and you think about how the authors of Scripture write things like, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept. It's grief over the loss of a culture, loss of a society. You think about multiple stories of Jesus himself weeping. And the New Testament authors often wrote their letters that they were like wrote in their letters that they were shedding tears over the people that they were writing to. So many of those who wrote the New Testament epistles say, write, write things like, I weep as I write to you. The people of God, listen if you can, are not the kinds of people who are always talking about how they feel like, quote, just so blessed. That is not what the people of God sound like in the story of the Bible. They're not just so blessed to have you know, recently remodeled their kitchen or received a bonus at work or achieved a new yoga pose. I did something very dangerous a couple of days ago. I went onto Instagram and I searched hashtag blessed. And if you really want to be depressed, I recommend it. Um, And you could, because you encounter things like hashtag blessed for crushing a new gym workout or buying a new Lamborghini. You know there's an Instagram handle called cars and Christ. Come on, guys. Um, Children running on the beach, a fresh haircut from the barber, completing a grad school degree, having a birthday, or my personal favorite, eating lunch at a Sheets gas station. Hashtag blessed. Like, we need a higher bar. Um, The point is, (laughs) the people of the Bible are, are more people of tears, lament, and grief, and mourning than they are people of shiny new things. 
And so it's fascinating that for us living today that Jesus would say something like, how fortunate those who mourn, for they shall be consoled. The idea I'd like us to explore together this morning is this, that the Christian faith offers the only way to grieve that leads to real comfort. The Christian faith offers the only way to grieve that leads to real comfort. And it does this because one, it's totally honest and realistic. Two, any other approach to grief is really just avoidance in disguise. And then three, it gives genuine and authentic hope. So one, it's totally honest and realistic. Two, any other approach to grief is really just avoidance in disguise. And then three, it gives genuine and authentic hope. Okay, first, the Christian faith offers the only way to grieve because it is totally honest and realistic. In biblical times, the most common way of dealing with the body of a deceased person was burial in the ground. In the nomadic period in the Old Testament, burial often would take place along a journey. You might think about examples like Jacob burying his wife on the side of the road and marking the grave with a stone. That's Genesis 35. Or you might think about Abraham buying a piece of land in which to bury his wife and actually to instruct people that he is to be buried there as well. That's Genesis 23. You also find customs developing for mourning and grieving loved ones, which usually involve a set period of time of public mourning and grief. And when you get to the New Testament, especially to the early church, what you find is that followers of Jesus are either buried in the ground or their bones are ensconced in catacombs underground. And everything I've said said thus far strikes us as not surprising and very normal because that's how much of Western society goes about dealing with the body of a dead person and also the grieving and mourning process. But if you think of this, if all of this strikes your ears as normal, then it just goes to show how deeply Western culture has been shaped by the imagination of the Bible. And we forget that so many other cultures and societies practice radically different customs when it comes to dealing with death and grief and mourning. Uh, In the ancient world, Assyrians buried the dead with food and water and favorite possessions and weapons to take with them into the next phase of life. Egyptians mummifying pharaohs with all their treasures and worldly possessions to take with them into the spirit world. Indonesian communities practicing something called manin, where they preserve the bodies of the dead so that later, at a certain time every year, you dig up the body, dress the body in clothes, sit the body in chairs, and have a meal with the deceased person. All of these, and I could go on, there are a lot, we're not going to go through every single different culture throughout history, right? But all of these are coping mechanisms to avoid accepting the brutal reality that the person is gone. They're gone. And the Christian approach to grief begins with acceptance, a very different note, acceptance. Nowhere in the story of the Bible do the people of God deny the reality of loss or tragedy or death or give in to these kind of external coping mechanisms. There's this internal acceptance. It means emotionally coming to grips with the loss that has happened. And then there's an external shaping of that acceptance, being able to talk about it, saying the person's name, telling stories, having a funeral, bearing a body, and resisting the temptation to put into the casket all of the stuff that you think that person might want with them. You know, there's that phrase that... I feel like I hear it mostly in country songs that kind of goes something like, you can't take it with you, right? Y'all, that is not a secular phrase. That is a deeply Christian innovation. That is something that the Christian story brings to the world. You can't take it with you. The Christian approach to grief begins with acceptance. 
But listen if you can. In the Christian faith, acceptance is commingled with defiance. Acceptance is commingled with its opposite, which is defiance. And there's an internal defiance. Mourning is, is in a sense, a form of defiance, continuing to love that person even though that person is gone. Mourning is the shape that love takes after the, after the beloved has died. True mourning accepts that the beloved has died, but it defies that the death was necessary or inevitable. True mourning cries out, this should not be so, that death is somehow wrong and unacceptable, disordered. And this takes the outward shape of lament, wailing, weeping, tearing clothes. In the ancient world, it would have meant putting on sackcloth and putting ashes on your head. And just as a little aside, it's probably worth noting that Christian funerals used to be far more chaotic and loud than they typically are now in practice. Our funerals today are far too peaceful and dignified. And when someone is in a state of being completely distraught, we are likely to think now, well, they're probably just not ready for the funeral. No, they're their experience of being distraught is actually a sign that they are ready. And those of us who are not distraught, perhaps we are the ones who are not ready for the funeral. It's a poem by Edna St. Vincent Millay who writes, I am not resigned to the shutting away of loving hearts in the hard ground. So it is and so it will be, so it has been, time out of mind. Into the darkness they go, the wise and the lovely, crowned with lilies and laurel they go, but I am not resigned. Down, down, down into the darkness of the grave. Gently they go, the beautiful, the tender, the kind. Quietly they go, the intelligent, the witty, the brave. I know, but I do not approve, and I am not resigned. Or as Dylan Thomas put it more famously, do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. You see, this in lies the Christian paradox of grief. You are really mourning, really grieving, and yet also defying the death that has happened. It's acceptance and defiance at the very same time. Low lows in acceptance, high highs in defiance. Uh, it reminds me of a song by one of my favorite folk artists, uh, Stephen Kellogg, who has a song called High Highs and Low Lows in which he writes about this dynamic, or sings rather about this dynamic. High highs and low lows, only one way that the river flows. Was it comedy or tragedy? Both, I suppose. You see, in this kind of paradox, you're being totally realistic about death in every direction and in every way. Realistic that it happened, but also realistic that there is something wrong with it. And so in one sense, there's acceptance. In another sense, there's not acceptance. There's defiance. And this is what it means to truly mourn. It's utterly honest and realistic. Honest about what's happened, also honest about how you feel about it. Now, what I want to demonstrate next is how any other approach to grief that doesn't have this, this paradox of acceptance and defiance, any other approach is really just avoidance and disguise. Here we go. Way number one is what we might call stoic resignation. This is a way of kind of taking your emotions and simply cramming and stuffing them down. Lots of us do this. The goal is, I don't want to feel. I don't want to feel. And the motivation is, I want to be tough. I want to demonstrate that I'm okay no matter what. I need to show both myself and the world there's nothing I can't handle. And the result is that your grief ends up controlling you in ways that you're not aware of. Have you ever been around somebody who has just experienced a terrible loss and with their words, they're trying to convince everybody they're okay 
And yet by the way they're behaving, everyone around them is kind of going, you are not okay, right? You've seen this, I have too. William Shakespeare in Macbeth puts it this way, give sorrow words. The grief that does not speak knits up the overwrought heart and bids it break, which is really just an old fashioned way of saying when you stuff those emotions down, it fractures your heart. You have to give voice to your sorrow. So the practices of this kind of person of stoic resignation is simply like not talking about it, acting like the person never existed. We shall not speak that person's name anymore. Put away all the pictures, lock up the room, sell the stuff. We're not going to talk about it. That's stoic resignation. And there's a pretty obvious form of avoidance. I would venture to guess most of us can see that pretty clearly. Here's the next one. What we might call therapeutic inevitability. Therapeutic inevitability, which I know sounds complicated, but really it, it, it pops up in phrases like this. Death is really just a part of life. It's the circle of life. Things live, things die, and around you go. The goal of this approach is I must feel good. Feeling good is essential. The motive, the deep underlying motive is I must avoid pain at all costs. And the result is a person who is constantly reframing bad things as good things. You ever been around somebody like this? Where every time something tragic happens, they have to find a spin or a way of reframing it that makes the bad thing actually a good thing so that we don't have to be sad about it. And the practices of this kind of person are a constant seeking of needs, uh, of this need to feel better. And that means that beliefs are open to change and I'm sort of always looking for the set of beliefs that is going to help me feel the best, right? And when I run into beliefs that don't help me feel good, then I'm actually willing to switch and change what I believe in order to preserve the good feelings. So stoic resignation is a stuffing down of emotion. Therapeutic inevitability is more like a chasing after that good feeling and a running away from the bad feeling. Now that's just two forms. There's a, there's a third one, and it doesn't have a fancy name. We would just call it numbing not paying attention. The goal is to focus on something else besides the grief. The motive is to seek peace of mind like above all else, even if it means not thinking. And the result is somebody who ends up retreating from life, retreating from relationships, sometimes even retreating from themselves. The practices of this kind of person is someone who's constantly trying to fill the void with either distraction or maybe drugs or alcohol or something, anything to get rid of that feeling of pain. And there's a reason why so many people who lose a spouse end up spending the rest of their life kind of just in front of the TV because it numbs, it distracts, it avoids. It's the kind of person who, they're like smaller versions of this, right? Because remember, we're, not, we're talking about grief and grief is not always about death. There are smaller forms of grief or loss. And so there are smaller, more benign forms of, of numbing, right? You have a bad day, you go home, you watch three hours of Netflix, eat two bowls of ice cream, right? I'm just not gonna, th- like, I do this all the time, right? We all do this in various ways. It's a way of saying, that was bad. I don't wanna think about it. I'm gonna do this so that I don't have to deal with it, right? Now that's three different forms. The, the fourth one is probably the one that, that many of us slip into from time to time, or at least have people around us that slip into it. And I'm not accusing you, but I'm assuming that because we're in a church right now. And the fourth one is religious platitudes. The goal here is to somehow reconcile your pain with your faith. And you feel that the two don't go together. The puzzle pieces don't fit, so you force it. 
The motive is God won't let bad things happen to me. So this terrible thing must actually be a good thing from God. The result is a faith that can't deal with reality because you have to constantly, it's different from therapeutic reframing, which is sort of like, here's why this good thing actually should feel good and not feel bad. The religious platitudes version of that is, here's why this bad thing is actually an act of God. And therefore I need to be okay with it in some ways and absolutely loses any ability to protest true evil because you're constantly reframing evil as something that God himself must have done. It's a faith that can't deal with with reality. And then when someone passes away, you end up saying stupid things like God needed another angel. Shut up. (laughs) Or I'll be gentler on this one. It's not a funeral. It's a celebration of life. No, it's not. So just think with me for a moment. To which one of these four do you tend to gravitate? Are you more of the stoic resignation, more of the therapeutic inevitability, more of the numbing, or maybe more of the religious platitudes? I would confess to you all, I like code switch between these, depending on the situation. I have been in all of these zones before, and I tend to cycle right through them. And of course, there are other coping mechanisms, like you might be thinking of something right now that's not on that list, and that I'm sure you're right. So meditate on that for a moment. Any response to loss that does not fully accept the loss and at the very same time defy the loss is a form of dishonesty and unrealism. It fails to truly accept the loss and also fails to defy the loss, which means it fails to mourn. It fails to truly mourn. You see, the inverse of blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted is not like unblessed are people who don't mourn. It's like, it's, un, it's, un, it's cursed are those who fail to mourn and therefore are gonna warp them, twist themselves into a strange pretzel of a life, trying to wiggle out of the pain of this world. Listen, if your way of dealing with grief and loss and pain is some combination of these, then something is wrong with you and with me. There's something wrong with us and our beliefs. There's something wrong with our approach to life. We need something better. We can't go on. We're avoiding reality. Now, we said in the beginning that the Christian approach to grief is the only approach that like ends, terminates in real hope or real, uh, real comfort. And we've talked about it being honest and realistic. We've talked about these other forms that are really just avoidance in disguise. Let's talk about where authentic hope comes from. Let's go back to that very simple short verse that Steve Bird read just a few moments ago in the service. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That word comforted, also translated consoled. Just think with me for a moment. We're gonna get a little bit academic here, but consoled is these kind of, there's two parts of that word, con, which means with, and then sold, the Latin would be solare, which means soothed. So soothed with someone or something. And to be consoled, this word in Greek, uh, parakleteo, is, it kind of literally means like to be called to somebody's side, to be with them. There's a withness. There's a relational aspect to this. And it's so fascinating to me because this, is, this word, parakleteo, is the same word to describe the Holy Spirit. This is the same word that describes the Holy Spirit. In the first century, a paraclete is something akin to the family attorney. It's the advocate 
who comes to you when you're in trouble and then advocates on your behalf. That's what this word is getting at. And so the comfort or consolation that the text is describing is the comfort or consolation of somebody who is with you, who comes alongside you to be with you in whatever sorrow you're in and then to advocate on your behalf. Now, listen, just as desolation means being abandoned to like an absolute and terrible solitude, consolation, its opposite, implies that there's somebody who, is at, who enters my solitude to be with me, to share it with me. And the story that the Bible offers you in the gospel is a God who doesn't say to you on one hand, like, oh, you're feeling sad, get it together, right? Pull yourself together, man, and be tougher. Nor is it a God that says, actually, I'm just gonna help you feel better even in the midst of this sorrow. Nor is it a God that says, look, something shiny, let's do another worship service, right? Nor is it a God that says, you know what? They're in a better place. Just think about that and move on. Right? It's not a God who does any of those things. It's a God that says, oh, you're, you've experienced tragedy and loss. Oh, you're in a place of mourning and sorrow. I'm going to come grieve with you. The first thing God's going to do is he says, I'm going to come be with you in your grief. You know, Jesus was utterly honest and realistic about death. When, when a little girl was dying and a panicked father came to him to ask for help, you know what Jesus did? He came. He went. When his friend Lazarus died, Jesus wept. When Jesus looked out over Jerusalem and saw what that city had become, he wept. Jesus was the Messiah called by the prophet Isaiah, quote, man of sorrows. That's why we sang that earlier in the service. Man of sorrows, one well acquainted with grief. Sometimes uh, I'm tempted to think, and I wonder if you're tempted to think as well, that if you were friends with Jesus today, that um, your life would be like so much more joyful and happy because Jesus would just like buoy you up all the time, right? Like, wouldn't it be great to have Jesus as a buddy because he would just like help me understand everything, right? And I would just feel better. Ah, I think he would be sad a lot. He certainly was sad an awful lot in his own time. And so I think Christ, there's actually a discomfort here where Jesus shows us full acceptance of loss in his own mourning. Jesus might make us uncomfortable with how upset and sad he continually was. There might be a lot of Christians today who would accuse Jesus of not being joyful enough, right? But listen, Jesus' tears were not only tears of sadness and acceptance, right? They were also tears of stubborn defiance. And you see this in the stories that play out in the stories uh, that happen in Jesus' life. That little girl who was dying, Jesus goes and, and he gets there. Because he gets interrupted on the way, he gets there too late. The girl's already dead. And he goes inside. You know what he says to her? He says to her, Talitha kumi, which means something akin to, sweetheart, it's time to get up. Now, there's a gentleness there, but there's also a defiance there, which is, I'm not going to let this death stay. The death has happened and it requires a response. And the response is, no, we're going to change this. Same thing with Lazarus. He gets there, Lazarus has died. Jesus is grieving, weeping with everybody else who is grieving and weeping. And then his next word is a word of defiance. Lazarus, come out. We're going to reverse this. This this can't stand. This has to change. This is a foretaste of what would eventually happen in Jesus' own life. When he goes to the cross and he dies, he's buried in a tomb. His friends are weeping and wailing and mourning as they should. And then the word of God the Father to the Son is, it's time to get up. Come out. Wake up. 
Lane Cowan read earlier from the book of Isaiah that God's promised one comes to proclaim liberty to the captives. There's a temporal sense in which that is true. Anybody who's ever been incarcerated should hear the good news of the gospel, that God is the one who sets the prisoner free. But there is a kind of prison to which everyone is destined, which is the prison and the captivity of death. That's when you're finally and fully locked away. And that is the liberty that Jesus has come to give, to say to those who are trapped and imprisoned by death, be free, get up, walk out. For us, the same voice of God that summoned Christ from the grave will actually summon us. And one day, after we sleep in the sleep of death, we will hear the voice of our God speaking to us, saying, wake up. It's time to get up, sweetheart. (laughs) Time to come out. Question, what kind of comfort is offered in the gospel? Answer, the only kind that really matters, which is an undoing of all of the wrong that has happened. You see, that's the, that's the defiant problem of grief and mourning, is when you sit in the funeral or you sit in your home or you sit in your car, or you sit in that place and the waves of grief and sorrow are washing over you and it creates that panic feeling because you know you're not okay, right? The word the gospel speaks to you is, this thing that is true will one day become untrue. It will be rolled back. It will be undone. And that's the thing you're really hoping for, right? Like every parent who goes to a funeral for their own child is only wanting one thing. And it's not for you to give them a hug and tell them they're in a better place, right? They only want one thing, which is for that kid to be alive again. And the goodness of the gospel is that God comes to you and says, yes, that. I want that too. And it's going to happen. That's the promise. My own son died and I brought him back to life. Your child is gone. I'm going to bring him or her back to life too. Now, friends, as we transition kind of towards the end here, I want to make one distinction very, very clear, which is it is possible, unfortunately, to be someone who believes in Jesus and yet practices stoic resignation. It's entirely possible to be somebody who believes in Jesus and yet practices sort of therapeutic inevitability. It's a circle of life. It's entirely possible to believe in Jesus and yet functionally always shift into numbing distraction. It's entirely possible to believe in Jesus. And yet those words coming out of your mouth are really, are not the gospel. They're just the religious platitudes. And so we must be people who not only believe in the gospel and the resurrection of the dead, but actually people who in our lives begin to practice the paradox of grief. And the paradox of grief, remember, is acceptance and defiance at the very same time. So we must become people who, through the gospel, begin to embody and practice that kind of radical acceptance and radical defiance. It turns out true mourning is actually an act of faith. It takes faith to really mourn. And so I, I want to ask you a question as we, as we are winding down here is, is there a place of grief in your life that you have not yet mourned? And maybe you're realizing at this very moment that you actually have been like, carrying this unmourned grief with you because up until this point, you've never known entirely what to do with that. Is there a place of unmourned grief in your life? And 
Listen, uh, the, the other side of the coin to that question would be, <laughs> are there neighbors that you know? And by neighbors, I mean family members, friends, coworkers, anybody near you in your kind of circle uh, that is going through a time of mourning or has experienced grief or loss or tragedy. You see, if there's a place of grief in your life that you have not yet mourned, then the next step for you is actually to settle into that place of acceptance and defiance and begin, probably with the help of some other people here, to lean into both of those more deeply. Have I fully accepted this loss? Am I really standing against this loss in gospel defiance? And then as you do that with each other, what you'll probably find is that there are lots of other people who are grieving as well. It's not just you. And you might actually find that there is an opportunity for you to go and to be present with someone else. And you know what another way to say that is? To go and to be a paraclete with them, to be the consoling and comforting presence in their life, to come alongside them, to be with them in their sorrow and their grief, not to make them feel better, that's not the goal, but to be with them. And as you are with them, you know what you are becoming? You are a foretaste of the Holy Spirit in their life. You're a foretaste of the presence of Jesus in their life. And therefore, you become a foretaste, just a little bit, of the hope of resurrection in their life. You're not going to make it all better with your presence. Let's not be silly there. But your presence matters. Your witness with those who are mourning matter. And there might be an opportunity for you there. Church family, let's conclude this way. We began by asking, do we know how to grieve well? And I would confess to you all that the answer for me is actually not a resounding yes. It's a maybe. It's a I'm still growing in this one. I'm still learning how to grieve. And my hope is that even though none of us want opportunities to learn how to grieve well, the reality is that those opportunities are going to come. And we will learn to grieve together, not just as individuals, but as a church family together. And my hope is that as we walk through tragedy and pain and suffering together as a church family, that the gospel would help us begin to live out that paradox of grief, both in acceptance and in defiance, so that we might become a consolation to and with and for one another as we anticipate the full and final consolation of resurrection that we will all experience together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you that you have come to us in Jesus and you have also come even into us in the paraclete, in the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to grieve well. Help us to be with those who are grieving so that we might become a foretaste of your consolation. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.